0: You heard the passage read? Yes? If I asked you just to make some quick observations, you might say, okay, well, uh, the setting, it's at a, a wedding feast. There's a miracle. Jesus turns water into wine. There's the mention that this was the first of his miracles. Okay, so that probably stood out to you as well. There was that note that Jesus, his glory was manifested and as a result, his disciples believed. And so uh, the glory of Christ is on display. His disciples believe in him. Those are all great things. It's a great text. But again, I think you read it, and it's not as flashy as some of the other miracles. It's not a dead person being raised or a blind man having his eyes opened. It's a wedding feast, and they run out of wine, and Jesus turns. Water into wine, which I think is amazing. It is a miracle. But what's really going on here? What, what do we learn about Jesus and his ministry in this passage? John 2, 1 to 12 is our text. The title, The King Has Come. And I would argue that that message is being declared through the miracle of Jesus, that the king has come. And here's the big idea. The right response, the appropriate response to King Jesus is to believe and follow, okay? what is the? If I asked you, what is the right response to King Jesus? Hopefully you would say, well, Chris, to believe and follow. There you go, amen, good, good answer. Um, who likes celebrations? I like celebrations because there's typically food present. <laughs> Most cultures in the world are familiar with the idea of celebration. We celebrate special days, birthdays, anniversaries. We celebrate special events, military victories, sport victories, weddings. And a celebration is typically marked by certain items or indicators, right? There's food and drink. There's balloons. Oftentimes, there's presents. And typically, there's a whole lot of people. In our passage, we find a celebration. And Jesus is at the very center of it. And more than that, in our passage, we find multiple indicators that the time of salvation, the long-awaited time of salvation has arrived, and it's arrived in the person of, of Jesus. It's obvious from our text that the King has come. Now, we have to read the miracles of Jesus through the lens of John's purpose statement in John 20, 31. I started with this when we kicked off John. John tells us, John the beloved disciple, tells us why he wrote this gospel. In John 20, 30 and 31, he says, there's some miracles. Jesus did miracles, a lot of which aren't included in my gospel. But these, like this one, turning water into wine, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that, you may have life in his name. Okay, so every miracle that Jesus does in John's Gospel has to be read through that lens. It's somehow related to Jesus being the promised king to rescue and rule over God's people. I gave you that definition for Messiah weeks ago. The Messiah... The anointed one, the king to come, promised in the Old Testament would rescue and rule over God's people. So every miracle that's recorded in John is somehow meant to reveal that Jesus is the promised king. You got it? I hope that was clear. Now, remember the context. What's the context? What happened two weeks ago? I didn't preach last week. We weren't in John. Paul was in 1 John. But what happened in our last passage? That was John 1 43 to 51. You're like, I don't don't remember. It's a long time ago. Well, let me bring you up to speed. This is Jesus in John 1, 50 to 51. But again, the question I want us to think about this morning is, how does the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine specifically reveal that he is Messiah? He's the king. So think about that. Here's the context. This was two weeks ago, the previous text. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? So let me pause. Nathanael, Jesus says, hey, bro, I saw you under the fig tree. What? I was alone. How did you see me? How did you know? Jesus exercises supernatural knowledge. Nathanael is in awe. He believes in Jesus as the king, as the Christ. And then Jesus responds, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Jesus is saying, I know that was pretty cool, but you're going to see greater things than these. So get ready, right? Verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Whoa, where's that from? Well, John is referencing... Actually, Jesus is referencing, because Jesus is speaking here. Jesus is referencing Genesis 28. Everybody know who Jacob was? Who was Jacob's daddy? Isaac. Isaac's daddy was Abraham, so Jacob was one of the patriarchs. God appears to Jacob in a dream in Genesis 28. And this is what happens. Jacob has this dream, and in the dream there's a ladder. Everybody knows what a ladder is, right? Right? use it to get from point A to point B, usually going up somewhere, maybe changing a light bulb. So (laughs) Jacob has this dream of a ladder, and the ladder extends from earth to heaven, and there's angels going up the ladder and down the ladder. And at the top of the ladder is the Lord. That's a pretty cool vision. And the Lord reiterates his promises to Jacob. You know those promises I made to your grandfather and your daddy? I'm going to come through on those. That's a pretty cool vision. And then Jacob wakes up and he's like, whoa, this place, special. And he calls it, here's the Hebrew, Baeth El, which in English is Bethel, which means house of God. This place where Jacob had that vision was the place where God revealed himself, his glory. So in verse 51 of John 1, Jesus is claiming to be the new Beth El, the new place of God, the new place where God's glory is revealed. If you've lived in Lufkin more than 30 years, and I've mentioned this person before because I grew up with him, you know the name Reggie McNeil. Because the last time the Lufkin Panthers won a state championship, who was quarterback? Reggie McNeil. I grew up playing baseball with Reggie. Reggie, oh my word, he was a man among boys. I remember we were on an all-star team together, and our dads would go out to Morris Frank Park, and they had those big, you know, five-gallon buckets full of baseballs. And on school nights, we'd go out there and hit balls. And there was probably four or five of us and our dads, and I remember Reggie hitting balls over the lights. We're just like, what is happening right now? This is a man disguised in a, you know, 10-year-old's body. What is happening right now? And he was just above and beyond anybody. And he had a great high school career at Lufkin. And then he went to Texas A&M and had a great career at Texas A&M. And then went and got drafted by the Bengals. But early on, I remember people saying, just you watch. You watch what this kid does. There were these great expectations. And that's what we see in our passage. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, just watch. Keep watching me. You're going to see greater things. And that kind of sets the scene for our first miracle. We're about to see the greater things that Jesus was alluding to. Now we're ready, right? You you finish John 1 and expectations are high. Jesus is claiming to be the new Bethel, the new place of God's revelation where his glory is going to be revealed. And now we're ready to move into chapter 2 with an expectation of what Jesus has promised to do, namely to reveal his glory and to perform greater works. So I want us to examine our text at three Levels and thus answer three questions. Okay, these are simple questions. Number one, first, what does this miracle turning water into wine reveal about the time? Everybody say, Time okay, the time. What what time is it? Don't look at your watch or your clock or don't turn around. That's not what I'm asking. When Jesus is doing these things, He's revealing something about the time, a specific time has come. In fact, In Mark 1.15, when he begins his preaching ministry, he says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. So what does this miracle, turning water into wine, tell us about the time? Number two, what does this miracle reveal about Jesus? What does it teach us about his identity? Who is he according to this miracle? And number three, what should we do about it? What should our response be to this miracle, Jesus turning water into wine? So those are our three questions. Number one, the time. What, what time is it? Number two, who is Jesus? What does this miracle tell us about who he is? And number three, what are we to do about it? All right, let's start with the time. Number one, the time, if you're taking notes, the time. What does Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine teach us about the time? What time is it? Now, there are several clues in our passage, some more subtle than others, that reveal the reality of of the time. And I want to start with the subtle. First, the third day. The third day. Who cares? Verse one, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana. Why that temporal mention? Why time? Who cares if it's the third day? What does that mean? I want to start with the phrase, the third day. Now, if we do a little math, who likes math? Okay, good. I like math. Clark loves math. If we do a little math. Beginning with John 1:19 and counting the days up until John 2, 1 to 12, the first miracle, we learn that a week has gone by. Look at any commentary, any scholar, they're going to agree with that, okay? Now, the first miracle, this is the first miracle, right? You guys heard that? The first miracle recorded in John's gospel occurs on the seventh day, a Sabbath. And this points back to the creation week, to Genesis chapter 1. Now, this is surely intentional, because how does does John begin his gospel? There's an echo. How does the Bible begin, friends? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How does John 1 begin? In the beginning was the Word. So that's an intentional echo back to Genesis 1, the week of creation. And then we have the, the image of light throughout John 1. Light is prevalent in Genesis 1. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And, and who else is at work in creation? The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters who's mentioned in John 1, Jesus' baptism, the, the Spirit. So there's all these pointers back to the creation week. Now, again, why does this matter? Why is this significant? Why would John, now follow me here, this is a little more subtle, why would John purposefully point us back to the week of creation in Genesis 1. What is John telling us here? This is really good. What is John telling us here? He's telling us that Jesus' first miracle marks the beginning of God's new creation work. The time of new creation has arrived with the coming of Jesus. Amen? New creation, that's salvation language. The time of salvation has arrived, and it's arrived in who? In Jesus. All right. Second, we have the mention of a wedding celebration. Who likes weddings? I do too. I've done a lot of weddings. I love preaching the gospel at weddings. I love the food at weddings. I like food. We have the mention of a wedding celebration and the miracle of turning water into, I know we're Baptists, but we can say it, turning water into wine. It's the Bible. Now, in the Old Testament, this is important, if you know if you said, Chris, give us one piece of advice for studying the Gospels, I would say, know your Old Testament. Learn to read the New Testament through Jewish glasses. In the Old Testament, there's a strong correlation between the promised time of salvation. You know, there's a lot of passages in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. We get that, right? I mean, in Luke 24, two times in that chapter, Jesus says, The law and the prophets, they all bear witness to me. It all points to me. We got that, okay? So, to really appreciate what's happening in John or Matthew or Mark or Luke, we need to be familiar with uh, the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, here's, this is why I'm telling you this. There's a strong correlation between the promised time of celebration, I'm sorry, the promised time of salvation. I pulled a Paul. I'm going to start saying that now, Paul. Where are you? I'm just kidding. I do that all the time. There's a correlation between the promised time of salvation and, believe it or not, wine. (laughs) Wine. An abundance of wine. Feasts. Feasts. Who likes a good feast? When was the last time you had a feast? Adam, thank you for that tomahawk steak because I had a feast. And then I made a weapon from it. I'm just kidding. But it was, that was a good feast, brother. Thank you. In the Old Testament, there's a correlation between the promised time of salvation and an abundance of wine. You're thinking, come on, Chris, where are you getting that? Okay. Isaiah 25, 6 to 8, we're going to read that. Amos 9, 11 to 15. Jeremiah 31, 12 to 14. But again, God in his word describes this end time salvation, what Christ would fulfill using the image of a banquet or a feast with a lot of wine. People aren't getting drunk. Wine, what does it symbolize? Celebration. Just like in our culture, you go to a birthday party, what do you expect to see? Cake and candles and presents and balloons. Okay, so that's, that's the image here. Wine in a feast was used to point ahead to this great celebration. So when you thought of God's coming salvation, it was something to be celebrated. Now, if you read Isaiah 25 and... Amos 9 and Jeremiah 31, what these passages have in common is that not only do they look ahead to the future time of salvation, but they do so by using these celebratory images of wine and great feasts. An abundance of wine was associated with the coming day of God's salvation. I want to look at Isaiah 25, 6 to 8. Now, I wonder if you're familiar with this text. I, I wanted to put it on the screen for us to read together. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Listen to verse 8. He will swallow up, ooh, what? He will swallow up death for how long? forever and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken it's a great passage what's associated with this time of salvation a banquet a feast and and wine he will swallow up death forever God will do this this beautiful promise is wrapped up in the image of a great feast of rich food and well-aged wine on the Mount of Mount Zion. For all the nations, by the way, if you caught that, for all the nations. An Old Testament scholar, John Oswald, he writes, For the Christian, if you read Isaiah 25, for the Christian, what other meaning can this have than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? In him, in Christ, death has been defeated once and for all. And we say... Amen. For all the nations. So John surely has this in mind in including this particular miracle. The wedding feast and the miraculous provision of wine clearly mark this time as the time of fulfillment, the time of the Messiah, the time of salvation. It's likely that Isaiah 25, 6-8 is the primary text in the background here. Now, before one can experience the joyous, In celebratory feast of God, something must be done. Death must be what? Must be destroyed. And this begins with the death and resurrection of who? Isn't it interesting that the good news that we herald as believers, as the church, it involves the death of our Savior. And God would sovereignly use that to put an end to death. Isn't that interesting? Would you have done that? Of course you wouldn't have. Neither would I have. But God... Knows what he's doing. He's all wise, all sovereign, and all good. Could this whole scene, if you were listening, John 2 1 to 12, could this whole scene be a preview of what Jesus has come to do to provide rescue for sinners? This is surely a time to be celebrated. Why do we gather as a church to celebrate who? Jesus and what he's done. What has he done? He's provided salvation. He's provided salvation. It's almost as if John wants us to see Jesus as the object of celebration, even though Jesus is just attending. You know, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, it's a Passover meal. You got bread, you got wine, but what's not mentioned in any of the gospel accounts? A lamb. There's no lamb mentioned. But who's at the center of the Last Supper? Jesus. What do the gospel writers want us to see? Oh, the lamb is present. The greater Passover lamb. And who's that? It's Jesus. What's interesting is, I mean, Jesus is invited to this wedding, but who's at the center of the wedding? It's not the bride or the bridegroom. It's Jesus. It's all about him. He's being emphasized, he's being brought to light. Why do we celebrate? We celebrate because of because of Jesus. We must remember that Isaiah 25, 6 to 8 and the events of John 2, 1 to 12 point to an even greater celebration to come, one that Jesus alludes to over supper and one that is described in Revelation 21, 4. So Mark fourteen twenty-five, Jesus says, this is the last supper, truly I say to you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What's the end of our story, church? A great feast, a great celebration, and who's going to be at the center? Jesus Christ. Revelation 21:4. If you were listening to Isaiah 25, 6 to eight, there's a lot of parallels to Revelation 21, verses one to four. There's the image of death being swallowed up. Let's read verse four of Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear. From their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I know this is a lot. This is heavy. This is a tough passage. What have we seen so far? I'm going to stop briefly and just summarize. John wants us to see, I believe, that the first miracle, again, he includes this as the first miracle purposefully. He wants us to see that the first miracle presented in his gospel occurs on the seventh day of the week, a Sabbath, looking back to the first creation and declaring Jesus to be the bringer of new creation. Second, the wedding banquet scene and the miraculous provision of wine look back to Isaiah 25, 6-8, a well-known passage that proclaims what? God's future Salvation using the images of a feast and wine. John wants us to see in the arrival of Jesus the arrival of God's salvation. In Jesus, the time of salvation has finally come. So, what time is it according to our passage? The time of? The time of salvation. And next we have the mention of Jesus' hour. Who caught that? What does Jesus say to his mom? Woman? <laughs> My hour is not yet. I'll explain. Jesus is not being rude to his mother, by the way. He's not. Jesus was sinless. Amen? But what's going on here? What does what the hour refer to? We're still under point one. What time is it? And there's all these indicators that Jesus has come to bring the time of salvation. Let's talk about the hour. Verses two to four. Jesus also was inviting to the wedding with his disciples. So Jesus, he gets the invite to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, "They have no wine." And Jesus said to her, "Woman, "What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What's the situation? Jesus, his disciples, and his mother are present at a wedding. And in verse 3, a problem is presented. What's the problem? The wine has run out. Now, you're thinking, hey, listen, we're at a party. We got Capri Sun. It's a birthday party. A couple of families, maybe maybe three families come late, and the Capri Sun is gone. We're not going to freak out. We're going to run down to Walmart and grab some more Capri Sun. That's not how this would have been looked at In this culture, it wasn't simply an inconvenience. This was a social disaster. Who's ever been embarrassed? Don't share your stories. I feel like the older you get, like the older I get especially, I just don't get embarrassed anymore. It takes a lot to embarrass me. I'm serious. Try to embarrass me. That's your objective. That's your goal. In the next month, see if you can do it. Good luck. But I'm sure we've all experienced embarrassment right? We don't long to be embarrassed. This is maybe what the conversation would have sounded like. So we were at Bill's wedding last week, and they ran out of wine. (gasps) Shut up, right? Say it ain't so. I mean, people would have been aghast. The host had the responsibility of providing wine, listen, for the guests, for the entirety of seven days. This was a week-long celebration, that's a long wedding. I bet most of you, if, if the wedding goes past an hour and a half, you're like, what is happening? Let's get out of here. It's not my wedding day. Shame on you. This was an event to be celebrated, right? But if the wine ran out, it was a social taboo. It was beyond that. It was a social disaster. This would have put a major damper on the, the celebratory event. So how does Jesus' mother respond well she she brings the situation to his attention they jesus they've they've run out of wine one commentator notes and i I disagree wholeheartedly he says mary's request does not necessarily suggest that she expected her son to do a miracle more likely she is simply expressing her general reliance on the resourcefulness of jesus I think based on Jesus' response, Mary expects something great. I I believe that. I do. And what about Jesus' response? Is he being rude? Woman, don't read it that way. The NIV reads, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Here's what's going on. Listen, it is not, it is not for the mother of Jesus to decide when Jesus should reveal himself, his glory, for he is acting in accordance to the will of his Father. It is not yet time at this point in his ministry for a full manifestation of his glory and majesty. Now, what does the hour refer to in John's Gospel? It's mentioned a lot. It's mentioned in Luke as well. But the hour refers to something specific. John seven thirty. So they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. No one touched him because his hour had not yet come. Okay. John eight twenty. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John twelve twenty-three. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then John thirteen one Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. What does the hour refer to? Now, the hour is a major theme in John's Gospel. It refers, are you ready? It refers to the hour of his glorification and more specifically to the the cross, his death. The moment when the Son of Man would be lifted up and exalted. So it's not yet time for a full manifestation of Christ's glory. So he acts discreetly. Only a small group, it includes us as well because we know about the story, but during the time in John 2, 1-12, only a small group were aware of the miracle. Of course, Jesus, his mama, the disciples, and who else? There's one more. The servants. Even though, now this is important, even though the ultimate moment of his glory isn't yet, the mention of his hour directs our attention to the end of the gospel, the moment of the cross, to remind us of why he came. Why did Jesus come? Why did he come? You could say he came to teach, he came to do miracles... Yes, he came to serve, yes, but ultimately he came to die. He came to give his life. There's this image at the end of the previous text. We saw it back in Genesis 28. It's the image of a ladder, and the ladder connects, right? Jesus is saying, you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I am the ladder, Okay, how is the hour related to the ladder? The hour answers the question. How does Jesus function as a ladder between us and God through his death, through his sacrifice in our place? Now, one more thing worth mentioning here. It's the language of Jesus' glory being manifested in verse 11. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana In Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. Wow. Okay, so they saw what he did, turning water into wine. His glory was revealed, and as a result, the disciples they believed in him. The language of glory looks back to what? What book? Old Testament. We were there for a year and a half. Okay, Exodus, good. Oh, you guys are on it today. The mention of glory looks back to Exodus 33. What happened in Exodus 32? It was a day of infamy. It was the golden calf. God's people break commandments one and two. They commit idolatry against the Lord. And the Lord is fed up. I'm going to start over with you, Moses, and your family. I'm going to wipe out this wicked people. But what does Moses do? He intercedes. He prays. He pleads for God to continue to go with his people, because if he doesn't, we might as well stay on this mountain. There's no way we're going to make it into the promised land. And he says, God, show me your glory. Show me that you're going to be with us. And he does. He hides Moses in a little cleft, right, in the rock, and he passes by. He shows his glory. So when you think about the first exodus, think about God's glory. What was revealed of God in the first exodus, the first rescue event. When you think exodus, right, the, the exodus, think rescue. God rescued his people and he revealed his what? His glory. The Bible promises there's going to be a new exodus, a second exodus, and God's going to reveal his glory. And, and what is seen in Jesus when he does this first miracle? His glory. His glory. Which screams that the time of the second exodus, the new exodus, the greater rescue has come. And it's come in Jesus. So, the seventh day, a wedding feast with wine, the hour of Jesus, and the manifestation of his glory. In sum, the first miracle of Jesus reveals that the time of salvation has arrived. The time of the new creation, the end of death the new exodus, the hour of salvation. John highlights Old Testament language and images to show that the coming of Jesus means fulfillment. The time of salvation has arrived. What about Jesus? What about Jesus? Point number two, the identity. What does Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine teach us about him? Let's start with the end of our passage in verse 11. Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his what? His glory. And his disciples believed. Andreas Kostenberger. That's uh, Pastor Mark's PhD advisor. He's a great New Testament scholar. A great John scholar. There's such a thing as John scholars? Yeah, listen, when you go into the academy, you focus like, on one specific area. And uh, Andreas Kostenberger is a John scholar. <laughs> cool. Well, anyways. He writes The time of the Messiah, okay, so this is what the Jews believed. The time of the Messiah commonly was thought to be the period when God would reveal his glory. So when God revealed his glory, you would know who had arrived. If it was thought in the first century that the time of the, the Messiah, the time of the king who would rescue and rule over God's people, when he shows up, God's glory is going to be revealed. Jesus comes. He reveals God's glory, which means he is the the Messiah. Remember Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And then in the next chapter, we have the promise that he'll come, and the spirit of the Lord will be upon him, and he'll preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind. God's kingdom, his coming kingdom, would be a period when God's glory would be seen. That was the expectation. Next, and this is really good, in our passage, Jesus fulfills the role of the bridegroom. What's a bridegroom? We never say that. What's a bridegroom? It's the groom. It's the groom, okay? It's the guy who's betrothed to be married to the girl. He's the bridegroom. The bride is the female, and the groom is the male, but... They called him the bridegroom. I guess you could say he's the groom for the bride. Cool? All right, so Jesus fulfills the role of the bridegroom. Again, we're answering the question, what did we learn about Jesus' identity in our passage? Verses 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water they knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, so the master of the banquet is saying, you, the bridegroom, have kept the good wine until now. Was the bridegroom responsible for the wine? No, who was? Who turned the water into wine? The master thinks it was the bridegroom that somehow brought the the better wine to save the day, but who turned the water into wine? It was Jesus. Credit is so interesting. Credit is given to the groom for what Jesus had accomplished. Jesus is depicted as having fulfilled the role of who? The bridegroom. Where else is this image applied to Jesus? He's the groom or the bridegroom. Mark 2.19, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. It's a time to do what? Celebrate. Revelation 19.7. Oh, not yet, not yet, sorry. 2 Corinthians 11.2 first. 2 Corinthians 11.2. Paul says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Why is this significant? Jesus is depicted in the New Testament as a betrothed king. He is betrothed to who? Look around, bride. He's betrothed to his church. He is committed to his church. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the the church. He loves his church. He dies for his church. And one day, we, his church, will be united with him in heaven for how long? We're going to be with him in heaven for how long? Forever. Again, how does the end of our story... What does it sound like? How is it described in Revelation? Revelation nineteen seven. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Do you long for that day? Church, or should I say bride of Christ, do you long to be with Jesus in glory? That is where our story is headed. John Piper states, this is really good, He said, King Jesus came into the world to take a wife. Not a harem, and not for sex, but to give her pleasures that make sex taste like cardboard. I guess Piper can get away with saying that. He paid for her with his life, and he is now at work by his spirit and by his word, purifying and beautifying her for himself and for her joy. Amen? Finally, Let's talk about the significance of the particular time of the wedding. Now, I'm going to move quickly here because I'm almost done. (sighs) What day did this wedding feast occur on? Again, it was a whole week, but the day the miracle took place, it was the third day. And if you go back to John 1 and you count forward from verse 19, it happened on the seventh day of Sabbath. Now, again, why is that significant that this event would point us back to the creation week. Why does that matter? Well, what is God doing in Genesis 1? What's he doing? He's creating. What is Jesus doing in John 2? He's creating. He's turning water into into wine. What's the climax of Genesis 1 and 2, the climax of creation? God created for six days, and on the seventh day, he, he rested. Okay, What does that mean? Did God get tired? Of course not. He's all-powerful. He doesn't run out of power, okay? Let's just read Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God finished the work he had done. He rested, and he blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy. Okay, The image of Genesis 2, 1-3, to is of a great king enthroned. He finishes his work of creation, and now he rests and he rules over his creation, over his people. The Sabbath was a day to recognize God's lordship over all creation. It was a day to behold and marvel at who He is and what he'd done. Similarly, the first miracle recorded in John's Gospel reveals the lordship of Jesus, His authority over creation. Can you turn water into wine? Say it. Of course not. Who can? Jesus. He's the creator. That's what we're meant to see here. He is God. Well, again, we could go back to John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. He's the creator. The miracle of turning water into wine reveals Jesus' authority over nature. He is the sovereign Lord of creation. Now, one more thing worth mentioning here. What does the master of the banquet say about the wine that Jesus made? Whoa. Whoa. This is the good stuff, right? This is like the reserve. This is the stuff you don't touch, right? He noticed, he acknowledges the quality, the quality of Jesus' wine. Jesus does everything well. Now, don't miss this. Does Jesus do things halfway? No. The master of the feast acknowledges the wine provided by Jesus as the superior wine, the good stuff. He acknowledges its excellent quality. And this is consistent with Jesus throughout his ministry. Let me give you some examples. John, the way he depicts Jesus, in fact, all the gospel writers, we see that Jesus' miracles are extraordinary. You know, he doesn't just heal a man, become blind, but a man born blind, John 9. He doesn't raise a man who had just died, but a man who had been dead for several days. We are meant to respond to Jesus in awe because of the quality of his work. Amen? And it's the same with his death and resurrection. In some, in our passage, three things here that we're meant to see about his identity. Number one, Jesus is the king come to rescue and rule over his people. Number two, Jesus is the bridegroom come to pay for his bride with his what? His life. And number three, Jesus is God the Creator and Sovereign Lord of creation. And then lastly, and this is quick, how are we meant to respond? (laughs) What do we do with this passage? Number three, the response. What response does Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine call for? Verses 11 and 12, listen carefully. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his what? His glory. And his disciples what? They believed in him. And after this, he went down Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. We tend to ignore verse 12. But who stays with Jesus? Who continues to follow? The disciples who previously believed. So, the response is in your notes. Believe and follow. Now, what did the disciples believe about Jesus? What we've already seen in John 1. Verse 41, verse 45 In verse 49, Jesus is the Messiah, the one Moses and the prophets wrote about, the Son of God, the King of Israel. The disciples believed that Jesus was the Christ. And what did their faith do? Faith does what? It it follows. Everybody say, faith Faith. Follows. follows. Right, their faith followed. Faith follows. If you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you'll be found following him, going where he says go, doing what he says do. Have you believed in Jesus as the promised king to rescue and rule over his people? And are you following him? Remember what we've learned in our passage today. Jesus came to usher in the time of salvation, and the time of salvation is now. Any first-time parents? None? No new parents? Okay, if you're a parent, raise your hand quickly. So you, you, do you remember your first child? Do you remember? Okay, so can I tell you Clark's birth story? Clark, this is great. You're going to love it. So Clark was born back in 2014. And Haley was a few days past the due date. And this was just a routine. We go in, ultrasound, they take measurements. You know, she still had a few days before they would induce. But we get there, and the doctor says, Hey guys, listen, the, the amniotic fluid is really low we got to induce, you're you're staying here. And I was like, man, come on. Like, wait, what? We're staying here. You should have, Haley laughs to this day. It just, I could not, it didn't register. I'm like, okay, wait, it's happening now? Like, we're having this baby today? And I'm crying. I'm like, I'm not ready. Like, what do we do? We're 2,000 miles away from family and friends. Like, what do we do? You're not going anywhere. We're inducing now, and when they when the doctors said that, I realized there was some urgency. You know, things were not great inside of Haley. They needed to act now. The time to have this baby was was now. What we see in our passage is that the time of salvation is it's now. Therefore, there should be this sense of urgency. We should be telling others that the King has come. He's provided salvation. He is the ladder to God through his life, death, and resurrection. Believe in him and follow him. I talked to a guy just the other day. I met him at a store. I said, Man, do you know the gospel? I'll begin conversations like that. Do you know the gospel? What are you talking about? Gospel. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what he did? Bro, he lived a perfect life. He died for sinners and he rose again. And if we trust in him, we can be forgiven and have a relationship with God forever. I didn't say he was the latter. I think that would have confused him. He's the latter. Guys, do you sense that urgency? The king has come. Salvation has been provided. <laughs> Let me end with three quick applications. Number one, hey, listen. Behold, believe and follow Jesus, okay? And as we saw today, faith does what it follows. Number two, celebrate Jesus now. Why do we gather as a church? Why do we take the Lord's Supper? We're doing that next Sunday, to celebrate. Celebrate now, and look forward to the celebration to come. You know, there's, there is some irony in our passage. As one scholar notes, the bridegroom was the person being celebrated. Jesus, in contrast, was just one of the ones bestowing honor. Yet it was Jesus who in the end became the honored guest and the person being celebrated. The irony, now this is good, the irony reaches its climax when the master of the banquet gives the credit for the superior wine to the who? To the groom. In the silence of the bridegroom is deafening, the name of Jesus shouts through the silence. Here's the point. There is only one who is all deserving of our praise and our honor in our lives. And who is that? It's Jesus. Are you committed to giving him all honor and praise? Remember, John's purpose in his gospel is to show us the matchless worth of Jesus so that we might behold believe and follow him and number three listen because the time of salvation has come it's time to bring others to jesus it's urgent amen people are dying without christ and we have the good news we know who the latter is the one who came to make a way for sinners to be brought back into fellowship with god and his name is jesus so the time has come the hour of salvation is now. Make Jesus known. Amen? 1-4-P challenge. Man, my central boys. They, listen, these central boys who do Bible study, me and Kobe are there every Wednesday, they know the 1-4-P challenge. I wonder if you guys know it. I asked them, and I think, why? You gave it to me. Maybe not in the right order, but you got all four of them, man. I think you just mixed up two and three. But I was like, my boy. Number one, what do you do? Start, you, got, you can find one person in your relational world who doesn't know Christ, who's lost. Start praying for them. That's the first P. Start planning how you're going to engage them. Number three, practice. Live out the gospel before them. Number four, what do you got to do with good news? You got to proclaim it. You got to tell it. There's a sense of urgency. People need to hear the good news. Tell them about Jesus. Invite them to leave their sin and follow Christ. Amen? Let's get to it. Let me pray. Jesus, we praise you. You are the bridegroom. You came to pay for your bride through your life. You are the one worthy of our celebrations. We gather in your name and for your glory. And I pray, Father, that we would know, that we know that we know that the Christ has come. The time of salvation is now. And that there are lost people all around us who are dying and going to hell who need to hear about the Savior. Father, give us boldness to go to them, to call them to leave their sin behind, and to trust in Jesus for salvation. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for loving us. And we thank you that you give us the Spirit to be your witnesses. And may we do that for your glory and the good of others and all God's people said, in the name of Jesus, amen. amen.